own the fact that our church, uh, this building that we gather in, uh, essentially sits not quite in the center, but off center of at the heart, really, of Bismarck and the greater Bismarck management area. And, I mean, really, you want rich people that way. You want poor people to go that way. You want uh, the underneath of town to go, to go that way. You want the upside of town to go that way. So there's, there's lots of um, lots of different parts of the city in every city, but all you have to do is take a couple rights or lefts out of this parking lot and you're going to find something. You're going to find a need of some sort, uh, a need of grace, a need of mercy, compassion, forgiveness, and it's going to come in the forms of many different things, whether it's home, people who are homeless, whether it's those who are hungry, um, widows, alcoholics, drug addicts, sex offenders, ex-convicts trying to pick up the pieces of their broken, fragmented lives, moving forward, starting over. The list goes on, and I think sometimes the church would think, we don't want to be in this neighborhood, or we don't, don't think we want to serve these this demographic, and, you know, but, but that's where God, that's where God plants this church. It's where God has planted us, um, and really to, to be a light on a hill, you have to be a light in the neighborhood. And to be a light in the neighborhood means that in some way, we've got to find a path to share the love of Jesus in those various places. So, um, this year has kind of been unique, really, and um, you know, doing something that we hadn't really done before in, in a way. I mean, we've we've worshipped, of course, uh, together corporately as a church outside uh, before, like out at Custer Park when we do our Sunday morning gatherings. But you know, doing kind of an evening uh, an evening gathering, uh, a late afternoon gathering that's, that's even more so open to our community and inviting other people into that story, whether it's just you know, just to worship and pray, and you know, whether it's you know, people who are not part of this house that we trust to lead us into prayer over the different people that are gathered. And, you know, of course, praying over what God wants to do, praying over our city, praying over our world, or you know, singing together, having you know, groups groups and individuals of all kinds coming together for something and it wasn't necessarily like a, a numerically big thing but I mean where two or more are gathered right? I mean, that's, that's the reality of the kingdom of God where two or more are gathered um, and I had the privilege to to, to meet somebody uh, through these uh, worship nights these nights of worship and prayer and and so I want to take a brief moment to, to share uh, some of their story uh, with you. Um, actually quite, quite powerful, and that's absolutely what I've come to love about uh, this 
because it's given us the opportunity to engage with people in different ways. So, um, I met a young man, he's 37, uh, I'm going to call him Richard, um, but uh, he grew up in addiction. Um, he knew uh, dysfunction at a young age because his mom was actively using drugs and alcohol and lived what he describes as a rock and roll lifestyle. He says there was no stability and he was in a lot of unsafe places as a child because of his mom's own stories. And the first time Richard got high, it was at the age of five. He said he was the subject of a party joke, standing in the hallway of his home in his underwear, feeling wobbly. By age 12, uh, Richard was getting into fights, doing drugs, stole his mom's car, and ran away. He ended up getting caught and put in a group home. And once he got to the group home, he assaulted a staff member and ran away again. He began getting locked up at places like the State Industrial School, uh, Dakota Boys Ranch, and placed in foster care and group homes. He said he didn't understand consequences and wasn't ready to get sober yet. And by age 18, Richard said he began breaking into cars, got busted, and was in and out of prison for a few years. All the friends he thought he had influenced him to live a life of crime. He kept selling drugs because he thought that was where he found his identity. And soon he was facing 7 to 15 years in prison and was contemplating suicide. All the crime came to an end when his best friend was ready to kill him. Richard was living a reckless lifestyle and says there's no loyalty in that game. And one day he was talking to his aunt and uh, one day he was talking to his aunt and he said he heard a voice tell him he was meant for good. And this wasn't who he was. And by now, Richard was ready to be free from the life of crime and got a chance to go to Teen Challenge. I'm sure many of you have heard of. He started finding peace while he was there and completed the first year of the program with an additional year as an intern and staff member. His life now is good, and his future is looking even better. Having been married for 11 years, he now has six beautiful children. He said he meant a more stable life for his children. And his advice to anyone looking for help or struggling with addiction, you have to want a better life, more than the drugs or alcohol. So, there was a moment in his life where there was a collision course with Jesus and Really, I'm thankful for the 
opportunities that God gives people just like you and I to sit down with people, to meet them right where they're at. Thank God for Teen Challenge, right? I mean, to be able to, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's just one of those things like I have been guilty of saying it takes a special person. I think to some extent it does. But really, at the end of the day, all we have to do is be willing to listen. That's a game changer for every person you want to come in contact with. Just be really willing to just sit and listen. No judgment, no sermon, just compassion. But now today, Richard is telling others who are trapped in similar stories they can have a future, they can have a life again, full of dreams, all because of the power of the one who brings the ultimate comeback, who brings us back from death to an amazing, never-ending life. So the question for us all today is what are the things in our lives that are literally carrying us out to death? Just mold that over. We'll just leave this question up for a bit. What are the things in our lives that are literally carrying us out to death? I think it's so easy to hear a story like the story of Richard and think, oh, it's such a sad story, such a sad life. Ah, oh, bless their heart. I'm so glad it's working out good for them. But today is really not about Richard. Today is about you. Today is about me, because what we know from the very teachings of Jesus is that we all have an adversary. And the adversary's plan for our life isn't just to trip us up, it's to bury us in a hole in the ground. And that's what Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal is to destroy. So we always amplify the backside of that promise. Jesus saying, when he comes to come back, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We always amplify that. But the other side of that promise, the first half of that, is just as real. The thief comes only to steal and kill, and destroy. And so, is there a relationship or some decisions that we're making? Is, is there a habit or pattern of life, something that we're refusing to give in and lay before the feet of Jesus today? That is the thing that is carrying us out to that place of death where the thief will say, I have stolen, I have killed, and I have destroyed. And into those moments today, it is possible that Jesus could speak life for you and for me, that he could bring us the greatest comeback of all, to snatch us out of the jaws of death and destruction and to bring us back into the land of living. I love the story of the day that Jesus entered a little village called Nain. 
It's a story that Luke tells us uh, in his gospel. It's in Luke chapter 7. And it says Jesus and his followers were all coming to the gate of this little village called Nain. And, and Nain means beautiful place. And as they come to the entrance of uh, to the village, a funeral procession was coming out. And, and Luke tells us that it was the funeral of a young boy who was the only son of a widow. And so immediately he paints the need for a huge comeback story because for this woman, her world had ended. So number one, she was a widow. In the day and age of Jesus, a widow had no rights. Couldn't own property. Obviously couldn't own a business. Uh, had no real standing in the community. But she had a hope. She had a son. And the son could own a business. The son could have a standing in the community. The son could make a way for her to have a life. But now, through some circumstances which... We don't know what uh, the son has died. And so out comes the procession. And so the son would be carried on uh, what to us would be a stretcher. Uh, it says a coffin in some translations of this text, but it's, it's really just a, a briar. So the body would hastily be prepared for burial. And the context of the story tells us uh, that this wasn't a wealthy woman. She was a poor widow, so there was uh, probably a hasty preparation, a very simple briar or stretcher, uh, and out comes the procession as they're taking her son outside the gates of the city to his burial place. But it just so happened on this day as death was coming out Jesus was coming in. And Jesus met the funeral procession leaving the little town of Nain. It says that Jesus did something crazy in that moment. He saw the look on the woman's face. He moved immediately with compassion towards her. And he said to the woman, Woman, don't cry. Uh, I, I love this because I love the, I love the pause in the, this middle of the story and, and look in the little cracks and, and crevices of these narratives in the life of Jesus because the why would you say that? Why would you say that to a widow whose son is on his way to be buried? Don't cry. What reason would there be to not cry unless Jesus already knew in his heart, I'm going to turn this story around, and I'm going to turn it around today. And I just wonder if maybe that's what God's thinking right now for you and for me. I wonder if God seeing what others can't see. I wonder if God knowing what may be the very closest people around us don't know. I wonder if God is looking at you or looking at me right 
now and saying, I'm going to turn this story around. The thief may have come to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come to bring life, to give life, to give the most amazing life possible. And so Jesus is looking at the woman, and I can imagine he's cutting his eyes to to the boy, and then back to the widow, back to the back to the son, back to the widow. And I think he's already sized up what he's going to do, and he's trying to say to her, "Don't cry. I know you should cry, but don't cry." I know normally you would cry in this situation, but don't cry. I would even cry in your situation. But something's about to happen here that's going to blow everybody's minds. Don't cry. And the scripture says that Jesus reached out and he put his hand on the stretcher. He said to the people, stop. Now, here's the crazy part of the story. Jesus was a rabbi. He had the reputation of being a religious teacher, a religious leader. And in this day, and in this culture, a religious leader would never go near a dead person because they would be defiled and unable to go into the temple for worship. And so a normal religious leader would have simply crossed right over to the other side of the stretcher other side of the road from the procession, but Jesus broke through all the norms and crossed right over to the stretcher, reaches out his holy hand, grabbing hold of the stretcher of death, and says, stop right where you are. So he's looking at the woman, don't cry. He's saying, stop to the funeral procession and Paul goes, stop, don't cry, stop, don't cry, stop, don't cry. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He looks at the dead boy and he says, get up, get up. And Luke records that immediately the young man sat up on the stretcher, and he began to talk. And I'm wanting more information. I want to know what was he saying when he started talking. Was he right in mid-sentence from where he left off before he passed away? And so he's like, so what I was saying before, wait a minute, why am I on the stretcher how am I wrapped in this cloth? Why is everybody crying? And then he adds it all up. I must have been dead. But now he's fully alive. And it says that Jesus took the young man from the stretcher and gave him to his mother. Could you imagine witnessing that moment? Imagine, parents, that was your child. Jesus did that for you. Just blows my mind. Just trying to wrap my mind around all the different moving parts of the moment. The, like my goodness. But I love this because 
it means that when Jesus reached out and took hold, even if he was a boy, and let's say he was a little boy, taking hold of a boy off a stretcher means he would have flexed his arms. That Jesus would have showed that he was a man and had handed back to the mother of the son, saying, here's your son, fully alive. I told you not to cry. Here he is. And then you think, on the other side, how much time was left before the funeral procession is the right distance out of town, and the son had been buried, most likely upright, in a very small hole in the ground. This is no Joseph of uh, Arimathea tomb, like where Jesus was buried on the day of his crucifixion. This is a poverty's family grave. Probably all she could afford was a circle in the ground, hollowed down where the sun would be put down feet first and covered in that hole. Maybe it was a hundred yards away. Maybe it was a few hundred yards away, but not more than maybe 10, 15 minutes, and, and this sun is buried and the funeral is over. But Jesus comes at just the right time and he proclaims to everybody, there are going to be no funerals today. There is going to be no funeral here today. And that's what Jesus is speaking into our lives right now. And for us to receive that, for us to, to lean into what this young man Experience and to be able to tell the story of that kind of a comeback, I was on the way up. I was steps away, hours away, days away from total destruction, from total collapse, from the biggest mistake of my life when Jesus entered into the story. They had already dug the hole in the ground, the enemy had already mapped out a plan for my destruction, but then Jesus entered the story. Jesus stretched out his hand. Jesus didn't wait for me to get my act together, but he reached out and touched my stretcher of death and said, stop right where you are. And I wonder if your story would be that Jesus spoke to me and he said, get up right where you are. Sometimes I think we want the miracle. We want the power. We want God to do what only God can do. But we don't understand that we have a role to play in the unfolding comeback that God wants to bring to our lives today. And that role is to get up out of whatever we have deceived ourselves into, to stand up on the person and truth of Jesus right here where we are and to cling to him and to lean towards him and to walk in the truth that he is providing for our lives. 
This is how the comeback happens to you. This is how it happens to me. So at some point today, to be a part of a story like the story of the widow of Nain, we have to be willing to say yes to Jesus, and we have to be willing to say no to the things that are literally leading us out to death, to our very own destruction. And I love how God has the power to reach us where we are. And I saw Richard not too long ago. I actually had the opportunity to, to partner uh, with him and his family for uh, some ministry just a couple weeks ago, and, and so now it's, it's been 14 years since that first Wednesday night when God showed up and said to him, there's not going to be a funeral for Richard today. There's not going to be a hole in the ground for you in life, but there is going to be a future and a hope for you and your son. There's going to be a dream for you and your life. And you see them and you just know, maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't, you know when you've met someone who they, they're just touched. They're touched by grace. They know that you know when you've met someone so special so radiant and their life is on track and they're they're giving everything they have to reach back to people in the very same position that they were in and say hey you don't have to take that path you don't have to choose that outcome but jesus is in the story jesus grace is enough for you right where you are jesus is willing to enter into the mess and lead you out to life. And he's doing that this very day. They are a living picture for us. So many people like that. Richard is a living picture for us. That someone at the very bottom of it all, on the brink of cashing in it all, and hear that voice of Jesus, the voice of grace and truth, the voice that says, I can change this. But you have to let me. I can redeem this and turn it all around. But you have to be done with it and say goodbye. And if you're ready and if you're willing, I will interrupt your funeral today. And I will rewrite this story, and the whole world will marvel at what God has done. And I love the way Eugene Peterson closes out this text in the message uh, translation. This is what he said. He said, uh, verse 16, they all realized. So now, Everyone is standing there, just absolutely jaws on the ground, by the way. And what just happens is Eugene captures it this way. They all realize 
they were in a place of holy mystery, that God was at work among them. They were quietly worshipful and then noisily grateful, calling out among themselves, God is back, looking to the needs of his people. And then here's the conclusion. The news of Jesus spread all through the country. That's what the outcome is for you and for me, because it's not just our lives that are at stake. It's not just our future that is at stake. It's not just our good that hangs in the balance. It's the story of Jesus being told to the world that hangs in the balance. And that story right now is waiting for you and for me to say goodbye to the stretcher and to say yes to the one who can bring us back to life again. So this week's teaching in the comeback, it asks us the profound question, do we believe that things can really change? Do you? Do you believe that things can really change? Do you believe that the power of prayer actually works? Or are they just empty words to fill a, a routine, a rhythm that you have, whether it's dinner time or, or any other meal or bedtime prayers? Do you believe that the words that come out of your mouth, that God does something with do you believe that things can really change? Does tomorrow have to be the same as today? Or is it possible for Jesus to intersect our lives, even on a stretcher, and do something new? Yes, things can be different. At the heart of that witness is the practice of baptism. Because in baptism, we get a powerful expression of a new life. When we are baptized, we go down into the water, which symbolizes the death of our former sinful self. But then we are brought forth out of the water into the new life God has for us. We are a new creation in Christ. Jesus can make things different, and it can start today. In the earliest expressions of the church, before people uh, would go into the water, they would stand and face the west. Our west, and not, not north, south, or east. Because the sun sets in the west. And so the ancient Christians used that symbolically to denote the darkness. The West was where the light went out. Therefore, as a physical affirmation that they were leaving behind the works of darkness and putting on Christ's light just before their baptism, Christians would spit towards the West. This visceral symbol of disgust, aversion, and rejection was applied to destructive patterns 
and attitudes of the old life. Now that these believers were Jesus' followers, they wanted to leave those things behind. So this week, I'm going to take a page out of these early Christians' book without the spinning part. That's gross. <laughs> Receiving new life from Jesus requires our participation. If God brings a comeback into our lives, we have a responsibility to keep that going. So today, we're going to go outside and use a compass to find the west. Once we've determined where west is, we'll stand and face that direction. Now, I want to just, I want to encourage you, this will be our, this will be our week. So, for those, for those that do want to help us with putting chairs up and coming back in, tear some stuff down, you know, yeah, come back in. But from here, this is it. So, you know, everyone can feel free to, to suit up and, you know, put the coats on and, and we'll just go outside. And if you want to leave after this exercise, you're free to do so. And if you want to hang out with us and help tear down some stuff, come on back in here tomorrow and we'll, we'll uh, have some fun tearing some stuff down together. Um, but, uh, so, we'll face that direction face west together, but then next, what I want us to do, I need you to consider what destructive and unhealthy habits are getting in the way of the full life Jesus wants you to have. And when you have that in mind, We'll rotate, we'll turn toward the easy and put your back to the west. So by doing so, each person will be saying, I'm leaving behind these patterns that bring darkness into my life, and I'm facing the direction where the light breaks through each morning. So let's do that. I'll close this and put it outside.